This week in KMA Land, Clorinda Council settles leash law issue. Page County supervisors discuss animal and fencing issues. Pipeline ordinance public hearing set in Montgomery County. Legislators and lawmakers protest pipeline eminent domain. February Rural Main Street Index highlights ethanol industry's impact. And school board news from Essex and Clorinda. I'm Mike Peterson. After weeks of discussion, Clorinda's new leash law finally crossed the finish line this week. Meeting in regular session Wednesday evening, the Clorinda City Council approved the third reading and formally adopted an ordinance amendment requiring dogs to either be in a fenced-in yard or on a leash when not in a residence. The approval came after one resident raised concerns and offered suggestions during public comment. Dave Coots, who previously stated the ordinance punishes responsible dog owners, says his dogs were, would technically violate the amendment while bringing them from his home to his vehicle. Basically, that's 7 foot 9 inches. I am subject to a $213 fine from letting my dogs go from my garage door to my pickup to get in it. Yeah, I can put them on my leash, but for 7 foot to put them on the leash, I'm not, I don't put them in my truck or take them on my truck on the leash. That's asking for trouble, too easy to get entangled and get hurt. So, my dogs, in my opinion, in that seven foot nine inches, they are not at large. They are off leash. And there's a big difference there because my dogs are under my control. The tighter leash law proposal came after an initial version failed a second reading in January that would have only required dogs to be on a leash when off the owner's property. After hearing residents' concerns about vicious dogs in the community, the council opted for a stricter regulation. Coots also continued to push for the city to allocate a space or dog park where residents could have their dogs off the leash. I drove around town about the only place I can find where we wouldn't bother any people is out by the uh, City Works building. In between the City Works building and the airport, there's just guests and there's between an acre and a half, two acres of piece of grass that runs toward the airport. It's kind of in a dry. Granted, I know there's a limit to how close you can get to the airport. That's set by the FFA. But all it would take is a barrier, like a cable or a fence. I know that there's going to be some costs involved in that. Coots adds grant funding could also be available, citing a dog park built in Creston that the Southern Iowa Council of Governments funded through a grant. However, City Manager Gary McLarnon says space would still be tight near the airport due to the large amount of unobstructed space required by the FAA. Additionally, Clarinda Mayor Craig Hill says he and the council members have not taken the decision to implement a leash law lightly. Although it can be an inconvenience to the individuals in this community at some time, I would rather have a conversation with an individual that I've inconvenienced them for a short amount of time rather than have a conversation with an individual where I have to explain to them why or how something happened to their family member that we could have prevented or tried to prevent. Councilmember Jeff McCall also stressed to Coots the law isn't intended to target responsible pet owners. This ordinance isn't for pet owners like you. The police are not going to be looking for pet owners like you to write tickets to. That's not why we're passing this. So if you have your dog out in your yard and you're playing fetch, I don't see the cops coming to write you a ticket. If your dog doesn't cause problems, you're not going to be cited, I wouldn't think. So that's not why we're doing while the process is moving slower than most had hoped, McCall adds the city is still working on determining an appropriate location for a dog park. Following the council's approval, the ordinance amendment goes into effect upon publication. Page County authorities say problems with the fence along Highway 2 are allowing animals to run loose. 
Page County Sheriff Lyle Palmer and Chief Deputy Charles McCalla updated the county's Board of Supervisors Tuesday on a line of fencing on the property at 1704 209th Street near Norwich in the Tarkio Township in southern Page County. The board gave the sheriff's office the go-ahead to replace the fence in June last year. However, as the sheriff's office has attempted to find a bidder for the project, Palmer says the situation regarding various loose animals has not improved, adding reports are still nearly a daily occurrence. Farmers in the area are starting to wonder what's going to happen when these anywhere from, we're estimating, both Charles and I grew up on farm, but four to 500 pound and about 350-pound hogs get out in the field, how much damage they're going to do to the neighbor's crops. Um, we also have goats. Uh, they get out they on a regular basis, numerous times a day. And right now, they're just kind of grazing while the hogs are rooting in the field around there. They haven't crossed the highway, but you imagine in your car going down the road at 55 miles an hour and hitting a four to 500-pound hog that is not going to move. At that June meeting, McCallis says 72 calls have been made since May 2020 and are now well over 100. In the nine months since that meeting, McCallis says he has only been able to find one interested bidder for the project from J&J Fencing of Red Oak, which he presented to the board on Tuesday. And it tells exactly what the, their uh, intentions are as far as labor, rental equipment, handling the livestock. I mean, somebody's going to keep tabs on it while they're building the fence and stuff like that. So their total amount for replacing the fence is $25,765. McCallum says he sent Murphy a letter requesting a new fence in December 2021 and was given 90 days to replace the stretch of fence per Iowa code regarding habitual trespass or stray livestock on neighboring property. Additionally, if the repairs are unsatisfactory, state law allows the county to repair the fence itself and assess the costs on the residents' taxes. On top of replacing the fence, Palmer says some counties have also attempted to establish wandering livestock ordinances to help deter the habitual scenario. For instance, let's say you would have an acreage and your livestock has been found, been called in seven times to have been out. I'm just throwing seven yeah, times out there then that is something where you can have a county ordinance that can be enforced by the court and you could start a fining on them where a judge if found guilty could fine them for that and then you continue the next time however he and supervisor jacob holmes added the ordinance would need to be a high enough bar to ensure accidents or minor incidents aren't treated as harshly Palmer recommended the board communicate with County Attorney Carl Songson on other possible legal actions the board could take, including an ordinance. In related business, the board also approved a $38,653 bid to replace the Sheriff's Office body camera system utilizing American Rescue Plan Act funds. Palmer says the proposal allowed for compatibility between the current and new devices. Our in-car cameras are Panasonic's. They're an Arbitrator HD is the model of the camera system in the cars, these also are Panasonic's, the sync with that. You can go with another one, but then you take a chance that it won't, what they call trigger or activate when either the body cam is turned on to activate the car camera or vice versa. Palmer says they originally planned to include the expenses in the upcoming fiscal 2024 budget before the board suggested utilizing ARPA dollars. Montgomery County residents will have their say next week on a proposed carbon pipeline ordinance. 
Montgomery County's Board of Supervisors hold a public hearing next Tuesday morning at 845 at the Courthouse Boardroom on a proposed ordinance regulating CO2 pipeline projects, including Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed Midwest Express pipeline, which would stretch through a good portion of western Iowa. Supervisors Chair Mike Olson tells KMA News Summit Carbon officials gave an update on the pipeline's progress in Montgomery County during Tuesday morning's regular meeting. They informed us that they've got about 68% of the mileage in Montgomery County has signed up, and, and quite a chunk of the remaining mileage is in negotiations as we speak. They let us know that there's already been $4.1 million invested in Montgomery County dealing with these leases and contracts and that type of thing. Olson says the company estimates the pipeline will generate approximately $600,000 a year for Montgomery County in tax revenues. He says next Tuesday's hearing will follow the usual format. There'll be a public comment time to ask, you know, state your feelings for or against, and we will also uh, entertain any written comments at that time, and then we will close the public hearing and then go ahead and, and, and make our decision. Olson expects three readings to be held on the proposed ordinance before final action is taken. Iowans calling for strict pipeline regulations made their feelings known to the state house this week. Legislators and landowners gathered at a rally in Des Moines Tuesday morning calling for legislation that would curtail the use of the legal maneuver to acquire property for proposed carbon sequestration projects, including Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed Midwest Express pipeline. State Senator Jeff Taylor sponsors Senate File 101, which would repeal eminent domain authority for hazardous liquid pipelines and give the Iowa Utilities Board authority to implement certain controls over such projects to protect landowners. Among other things, the Sioux County Republican says carbon pipeline projects don't meet the constitutional definition of public use. We know the difference between a public utility and a private money-making venture. That's right. That's what these yeah, pipelines money, are. Money. They're not a public utility. Yes. You can have private companies laying pipelines, electrical lines, all kinds of different things, but it produces a service, a direct service or product that the public is using. Nobody's going to be using the CO2 that's piped through this pipeline. State Representative Helena Hayes supports a separate bill recently clearing an Iowa House subcommittee requiring 90% approval from landowners before granting eminent domain. Hayes, a Mahaska County Republican, also attacked a recent Iowa Renewable Fuels Association study claiming blocking pipeline projects would hurt the state's ethanol industry. I pitch you, you either have to choose to support the ethanol industry, which you do, or try to take a stand for your own personal property rights and that's that's not that's not fair because there are options yes. and you guys know that so we need to be hearing the narrative about what are the options ethanol can still survive in Iowa without the pipeline meanwhile one of KMA land's leading economic indicators focused on ethanol's role in the farm economy Creighton University's Rural Main Street Index for February indicates the region's overall economic reading hovered above growth neutral for a third straight month. That's despite an overall decline in the reading from 53.8 in January to 50.1 this month. Bankers in a 10-state region in the Midwest, including Iowa, Nebraska, and Missouri, participate in the survey. This month's survey also provided insight on the ethanol industry's impact on the rural economy. 
Roughly 91.3% of bankers with an ethanol plant in their economy indicated it was an important industry. And approximately 63% of bank CEOs support capture and sequestration of CO2 from ethanol plants in their area. But Creighton University economics professor Ernie Goss says the support for carbon pipeline projects is contingent upon farmers receiving adequate compensation for pipelines crossing their land. Now, when it comes down to eminent domain, if you're talking about that, not nearly as much support. There's real concern there. And of course, we're talking about part of the nation. This part of the nation accounts for about 76, more than three-fourths of the ethanol produced in the nation comes from this part of the country. And, of course, Iowa's the number one ethanol producer in the U.S. It's a really very, very important issue to Iowa and, for that matter, the region. Concerns over two proposed projects were aired at this week's Essex School Board meeting. During its Wednesday evening meeting, the board received a petition with 42 signatures calling for a public vote on the proposed East Gym renovation project. For the past few years, school officials have explored renovating the facility into a community fitness center and reception area. Essex School Superintendent Dr. Mike Wells tells KMA News the district is already planning a bond issue referendum tentatively scheduled for September on a $1 million bond issue for the project's renovation. If you're going to do a bond issue, the voters have to pass that. So that was kind of a a mute point. Our plan is to bring to the voters a bond uh, referendum asking for approximately a million dollars to redo the East Gym. People will vote on that, and if they vote it down, then you'll take the money that you've raised, and that's what you'll spend on the project. If they pass it, then you'll have the fitness center and reception area of that building redone, and it would be brought up to code. Petitioners also called for a vote on any funding involved in the proposed Bank Iowa renovation project. Board members approved a land swap with Bank Iowa in which the bank receives district property for construction of a new drive through bank. In return, the district receives the existing bank for renovation into a restaurant as part of the district's culinary arts program. And Bank Iowa never pressured us or asked for that land. We just thought it was a fair a fair deal if they needed land to put a drive-through bank. And we have the land uh, across from Casey's, which is a good location for a drive-through bank, that we could do a land swap. So we would get the Bank Iowa building in its entirety in the parking lot, and then they would get an area large enough to put a drive-through bank. Wells hopes to meet with petition signers to clear up any confusion regarding the project. There was a lot of confusion by some of the people who signed that. They weren't really sure what they were signing, and we want to make sure they're well-informed. And we do appreciate people taking time and coming to our board meetings and expressing their concerns, because we all have the same concerns. In other business, the board set a public hearing for March 29th at 6 p.m. on the district's fiscal 2024 budget and tabled discussion on establishing the K-12 complex as an emergency site for the community. Clarenda school officials continue to get the word out in an upcoming special election regarding the district's facilities. Earlier this week, school officials staged open houses at both the elementary and middle school high school complex in advance of the March 7th referendum on a $14 million bond issue and the voted physical plant and equipment levy. Brief discussion regarding the open houses took place at Wednesday's Clarenda School Board meeting. Board member Paul Boyson relayed some of the feedback received at the open houses, which he says were successful events. I've heard comments both positive and negatively. But I think the open houses were a benefit because they could understand 
how we're going to pay for it. Boyson adds the open houses helped outline the differences between the two questions to voters. School officials proposed the bond issue to address numerous building needs, including building new classroom additions, renovating the science and family consumer sciences rooms and upgrading restrooms at the 712 complex, and renovating the east office and administrative space, and constructing a new early childhood center at the pre-K-6 building. Proceeds from the voter-approved PEPL, not to exceed $1.34 per $1,000 valuation, would help renovate the Career Technical Education Building at the 712 Complex, create secure entries to the pre-K-6 building, and a bus barn allowance as well. You can use it for more stuff because you can do the HVAC and stuff and not worry about reaching some problems with the language of the As with other bond issues, the Clorinda bond issue needs a 60% supermajority in order to pass, while the voted PEPL requires only a 50% majority. In a recent interview on KMA's Morning Line program, Clorinda School Superintendent Jeff Privius says the district will adjust its building plans if only one of the two questions passes. Obviously, we're hoping both questions get passed, but if only one question gets passed, we will make our adjustments from there and try to do the most we can with our money. And then we'll hopefully, if we have to, we'll bring that back again in November for another ballot question. Boyson also noted the yard signs dotting Clarinda neighborhoods reminding residents to vote on March 7th. Recent activities of the State House are forcing KMA land officials to adjust budget figures for the upcoming fiscal year. At its regular meeting Tuesday night, the Red Oak City Council held a public hearing on the maximum property tax levy for fiscal year 2024 beginning July 1st. However, a final budget hearing is yet to be set following approval from the Iowa House on a bill addressing an error in property tax rollback numbers from fiscal 2021. Under the current budget proposals, the city's property tax levy increases slightly from $15.93 per $1,000 valuation to $16.89 per $1,000. Interim City Administrator Al Vacanti attributes the increase to lower taxable valuations. Additional levy rates, including liability, property, and self-insurance costs, along with cost-of-living adjustments. So those are all in there, and that's part of where the uh, increase comes in. I guess I would look at it and just say you're, you're still staring down the barrel of 8 to 10% inflation rates, so looking at 45 there's some anticipated uh, some couple of staff hires and then inflation costs are, are leading the charge for that. Earlier this week, Governor Kim Reynolds signed Senate File 181 into law, ultimately shaving off $133 million in property taxes that would have been paid across Iowa. However, it left cities, schools, and counties scrambling to adjust their fiscal 24 budgets. Reading a memo from the Department of Management, Vacanti says published rates can be adjusted but will still be somewhat limited to make up any deficits due to the correction. If your property tax rate must increase over what was published on the max levy notice to generate the same dollars published on the notice, this will be allowed to the extent that maximum individual levy rate caps will allow. No republication or rehearing of max levies already in progress should be required. He adds the city was already anticipating maxing out their general levy at eight ten per $1,000 valuation. Even before the correction, Vacanti says the city was expecting a loss of $3 million in taxable valuations. However, he says the bill's impact will be officially known early next month. Then we're going to have to wait until March 9th. The county assessors have until March 9th now to go back and re evaluate and reassess. So we're going to get those numbers. Uh, I understand that that's probably going to have an impact 
before we post any notice for a final hearing. Other KMALand City, County, and school officials face the arduous task of revamping budget numbers for next fiscal year. Montgomery County Supervisors Chair Mike Olson told KMA News state officials extended the deadline for certifying city, county, and school district budgets until April 30th because of the rollback issue. How much time it's going to take to do all this, I don't know. Because revenue is the issue. It, is, it isn't expenses because expenses are pretty well taken care of. It's what the revenue situation is going to be that will change the budget. Olson calls the entire situation unfortunate. It wasn't fair to overtax one sector of our population, of our you know homeowners and apartment owners and that type of thing. But I don't think it was fair to do this this late in the, in the budget season and make all these entities, not only counties, with cities and schools and hospitals and township trustees and extension boards, it's going to affect everybody. And everybody's got to go back to the drawing board and, and do it again. More discussion on the issue is expected at future supervisors' meetings. Fremont County officials are the latest to explore new technology for preserving county records. David Frank of ArcaSurge outlined his company's services in the digitization of county records at Wednesday morning's County Board of Supervisors meeting. Based in Cold Spring, Minnesota, the company assists counties and other entities in capturing data on camera and building a searchable archives for public access. Frank says the company has worked with numerous counties in Iowa, most recently Taylor County, in digitizing important records. You know, a lot of the Iowa counties I talked to said, oh, this is really exciting. We just they don't have money. We don't have money. And so we did, we did a few uh, counties then. But what really got going was certainly the, the pandemic where people had to close their you know, counties. Staff was working from home. So that all of a sudden there's a realization it's important to be able to get to information. Frank says preservation and access are the driving forces behind record digitization. You've got a vault full of records that exist in only one place. Well, that's not true. There's probably a microfilm. There might be a microfilm copy somewhere. So there is some backup there. But people need them. They have to come here to the county to get them. So what we do is we address the historical collection of records uh, to digitize them, make them the image look just like it is in the book, and then make them searchable online. Though county auditors and recorders' offices' records are often preserved, Frank's other departments are applicable. He says the need for permanent records is the litmus test for preservation. Treasures have a ton of stuff, and most of the stuff isn't permanent. And they always want, well, I got all this. I know you have a space problem, but it's, it doesn't really warrant this. And they're like, you're trying to talk to me. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. If it's not a permanent record, why would we spend money on it? I don't care if it's ARPA dollars. It's still, you know, we want to be judicious about how we spend this money. And typically, treasures don't have that many permanent records. So that's always the litmus test to me is who's looking at it and, and what's the retention period on it. While no exact cost figures are available, one estimate places preserving the county auditor's records at approximately $30,000. Legislators recently acted on a bill supporters say could provide a lifeline for small rural hospitals. Last week, the Iowa Senate unanimously passed Senate File 75, which would allow hospitals in the state to opt into the Rural Emergency Hospital designation put in motion by the Federal Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. The bill now awaits action to the State House. The federal law created the new category of hospital, which facilities could begin applying for at the beginning of this year. State Representative Tom Moore, who has sponsored similar legislation in the House, says the bill would get the state caught up to new federal designations. Which requires them to be open 24-7 uh, to provide those rural emergency services, but it also 
uh, provides them with increased federal dollars when it comes to uh, to uh, patient care there. The federal rule allows rural hospitals to continue inpatient care and focus instead on providing outpatient service and other emergency medical care. Once a critical patient is stabilized, they would be transferred to inpatient care elsewhere, while patients with less acute emergencies could be quickly treated and discharged. Additionally, the bill would also increase the government's reimbursement rates for Medicare and Medicaid patients at a rural hospital. Moore acknowledged the legislation could provide benefits for a limited scope of hospitals in the state, but adds if it serves as an alternative to closing a facility's doors. The Griswold Republican pointed to a Quincy, Illinois-based hospital that closed in 2022. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com. You can also hear this program in its entirety. From the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.